Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We've been talking about the role of faith and refuge in bringing us and holding us to the learning and practice of the Buddha's Dharma as carried forth through the generations by the Sangha. Refuge is our faith in the three sources of wisdom in the equation, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Without refuge, our practice is anemic or motivated through seeking self-gratifying experiences, even in our meditation practice. Modern people tend to prefer reason to emotion, which is why we tend to prefer to speak of conviction or trust rather than of faith or devotion. Recall that I described faith as a combination of trust and wholeheartedness, which can be a quite discerning assessment of how to proceed in the current circumstances, but is also highly emotional. Recent neurological research shows that reason and emotion cannot be easily separated in human cognition. There are people that have a lesion in a certain area of the brain that makes them incapable of emotional response. These people can still use language and solve abstract problems or calculations. However, they cannot manage simple tasks like grocery shopping. The problem is that they are incapable of making a practical decision because with their emotions, their preferences are gone. Well, entering the Buddha way is itself a decision, perhaps one of the most important decisions we make in our lives. And continuing to live in accord with the Buddha way is a decision we make over and over. The Buddha was quite aware of the emotional underpinnings of these decisions, for he made these objects of practice in their own right. For this reason, entwined with wholeheartedness, Respect, deference, reverence, veneration, and devotion are important concepts in the Buddha's teaching that we deliberately cultivate. They serve cognitive functions in focusing our range of choices within the explosively intractable universe of possibilities, but carry an emotional charge as well. The Buddha once stated, One One dwells in suffering suffering if if one one is without without reverence and deference. Why? Because one lives without direction. Through reverence and deference, we rely on others to bring the world into some kind of order. In this regard, the Buddha also said, What What is is the the cause and reason why, Bhante, the good Dhamma does not continue long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. Here, Kimbala, after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana, the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male lay followers and female lay followers, 
dwell without reverence and deference toward the teacher. They dwell without reverence and deference toward the Dharma. They dwell without reverence and deference toward the Sangha. They dwell without reverence and deference toward the training. They dwell without reference and deference toward concentration. They dwell without reverence and deference toward heedfulness. They dwell without reverence and deference toward hospitality. This is the cause and reason why the good Dharma does not continue long after the Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. Respect is perhaps one of the most elemental of these factors in human social cognition. Specifically, it is a process of directing attention to give a person, a teaching, or a practice of fair hearing, to open oneself to deeper understanding before the mind wanders off into irrelevance. Attention is important for the Buddha, and wise attention, yoniso manasikara, is critical for the success of our practice. Etymologically, respect means look again. It is a decision we make that has an emotional consequence. It forgoes aversion and has a little whiff of kindness, open-mindedness, and open-heartedness. It also comes with a lot of social indicators, looking in the eyes, shaking hands, smiling, tipping one's hat. In fact, by wielding social indicators, expressing our respect bodily, we find we enhance our respect. This is how we cultivate respect. Deference, reverence, and veneration scale up from simple respect, as do their social indicators. Americans are, by and large, short on respect. Our default tendency is to think everyone around us is an idiot and not to offer them respect unless they prove they are worthy of it or unless we are trying to sell them something. And we suffer for this enormously as a society. But this serves to illustrate the value of respect and make my point. We take up Buddhist practice respectfully, take refuge and venerate the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, thereby doubling down on our respect. And then they teach us the value not only of respect, but of deference and veneration. Deferring to the triple gem, we open our hearts and minds, take the teaching seriously, reconsider our previously established attitudes about respect, and try something different. This is social cognition in action. Respect opens our hearts and minds, and as a result, we learn and take heart. According to the Buddha, we cannot stop at simple respect, but must turn respect into reverence and deference as well. Without these, we will never fully encounter the Buddha's way. We will never develop the necessary sense of commitment or devotion and never be able to vow that this will be the shape of my life. We've talked about the monastic code. It's worth noting that monks and nuns are instructed in the Winia 
not to teach to people who lack respect for them, in particular a section of the 75 Rules of Etiquette, specify that a monk will not teach to one who carries an umbrella, a club, or a weapon, wears sandals or shoes, is in a vehicle or in a bed, sits clasping the knees, wears a turban or other head covering, sits on a higher seat, sits while the monk is standing, walks preceding the monk, or on a pathway while the monk walks off the path. These would have been social indicators of disrespect in the Buddhist culture, most not in ours. But by the great standards, we extend these to modern ways of showing disrespect. Why aren't monks allowed to teach to the disrespectful? Their hearts and minds will not be open to the teaching. The monastics would be wasting their time. Veneration is a direct causal factor in attaining certain wholesome qualities of mind that we try to develop in Buddhism, including peace and humility. Deference to another generally serves immediately to deflate the ego, to knock it out of its accustomed privileged position in the universe as the one who has it all figured out. In fact, this seems to me to be a basic function of the worship of God in other religions. With the development of humility, the craving to be someone, and to distinguish itself as that somebody, relaxes into a great sense of ease. As the Buddha states with respect to a particular practice of veneration, when a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion his mind is simply straight. He has departed from greed, freed himself from it, emerged from it. Some beings here are purified in such a way. This passage is repeated in the sutta with each of Dharma, Sangha, his own virtuous behavior, and his own generosity, replacing Tathagata. Veneration, or its relative, deference, has its physical counterpart in Buddhism, as in many religious and also secular traditions. It seems to be in our genes that movement or verbalization in a social context, tends to reinforce social attitudes. Hugging, for instance, reinforces affection in any culture, as does petting a dog or cat, or getting licked in the face in return. In the military, explicit forms of deference, such as salutes or titles of respect, are used effectively to imprint structures of command. When a judge enters a courtroom, all rise. Each language has also verbal forms of deference, such as sir or madame. Many Indo-European languages have two words that mean you, one informal, like tu in French or du in German, and one is deferential, like vous in French and sie in German. English has lost its informal thou in favor of the once deferential you. 
Nearing his parinirvana, the Buddha anticipated that his relics, the remains after his cremation, would become objects of physical veneration and accordingly specified that they be divvied up and distributed to specified clans of lay devotees so that they might build stupas over them. This became the primary physical symbol of the Buddha for purposes of veneration for many generations. The Buddha also specified four significant places from his life as destinations for pilgrimage. Ananda. There are four places, the sight of which should arouse emotion in the faithful. What are they? Here the Tathagata was born is the first. Here the Tathagata attained supreme enlightenment is the second. Here the Tathagata set in motion the wheel of Dharma is the third. Here the Tathagata attain the Nibbana element without remainder is the fourth. We find veneration of the Buddha expressed by his many disciples and visitors in the early discourses through full prostrations, sometimes touching the Buddha's feet, by circumambulation, while keeping the Buddha on one's right, by covering one's otherwise bare shoulder with one's robe, by sitting on a lower seat than the Buddha, by standing when the Buddha enters the room, by walking behind the Buddha when traveling with him, by not turning one's back to the Buddha, and by proper forms of address. In the early scriptures, the Buddha occasionally chastised a visitor for not showing proper respect. And this, in fact, began immediately after his awakening with the Buddha's re-encounter with the five ascetics to whom he delivered his first Dharma talk. He recognized that respect plays an essential social role in human affairs and by the same token in the sasana. It's evidence of the importance accorded to physical and verbal expressions of veneration in Buddhism that Buddhism has carried many of its originally culturally conditioned forms from India to every land in which Buddhism has taken root, regardless of how dissimilar the culture. Most significant of these is the bow, Anjali, a quite ubiquitous expression of respect or greeting in its land of origin, produced by bringing the palms together before the chest or, or face, sometimes combined with a complete prostration. Japanese Zen master Suzuki Roshi, shortly after arriving in San Francisco, was alarmed at the resistance his American students displayed toward these bows, particularly toward the three full prostrations, standing for the three refuges, that he required of them in the early morning. He accordingly adapted this practice to the West. He required of his American students nine full prostrations instead of three, a custom that has endured over half of a century later among his current disciples. 
I dare say, had I been among Suzuki Roshi's early disciples, I would have been one of the resistors. In fact, we're getting into a sensitive subject for many Westerners who come to Buddhism. We tend to want to be spiritual but not religious and want to avoid things like bowing and ritual and ceremony in general. We tend to think that veneration, devotion, and worship are humbug. Sacred spaces, artifacts, and people are balderdash. And of course, clergy and all these people running around with robes and bald heads are poppycock. I used to think this way. I'm a cognitive scientist by training and by prior profession. So I tend to focus on the function of these things in how they help our Buddhist practice. None of these things is magic. I've been trying here to emphasize their role in social cognition, specifically how they help us help each other and keep the sasana alive for future generations. In fact, none of these things is specifically religious in nature. Their equivalents are found also in what would normally be regarded as distinctly secular contexts. For instance, table manners and proper arrangements of cutlery and plates and glasses in a proper table setting are ritual practices. Bowing is a form of ritual conduct, but so is shaking hands or wearing a tux to a formal dinner party. Sports events involve layer upon layer of ritual, sacred spaces, worship, chanting, group solidarity, and typically a sense of tradition. Government functions and places of government exhibit almost every one of these so-called religious features, by my count. Judges even wear robes, a marker of the archaic and imbuer of awe. Armies likewise exhibit most, maybe because they need a hierarchical command structure that leads to unquestioned and immediately obeyed decisions in matters of life and death. Even academia exhibits many of these so-called religious features, certainly veneration, scientific paradigms, and ivy-colored professor acquire sacred status. Consider graduation ceremonies where, again, the awe of archaic robes are found. I read something recently, I think by a professor, who thought graduations were hooey, obligated to attend them as I once was with the same attitude. He at, at once had an epiphany. He suddenly pictured such ceremonies extending back in time, students receiving diplomas in one generation, only to become professors handing out diplomas in the next, extending back into ancient times, perhaps all the way back to Socrates. Then there are those most common objects of veneration in our culture, celebrities, such as bad actors and robber barons. Consumer goods such as iPhones and fashionable attire, for which newness rather than archaicness unaccountably bestows particular value. Our cars are sacred. 
We attribute to our celebrities fantastic wealth, sparkling charm, and voluptuous sexuality, much as the people of Buddha's India attributed divinity to the great ascetics, Brahmins, and cows. And we attribute to our recent purchases the capacity to conjure up such wondrous attributes in ourselves. The point is that how we decide where to put our attention, our energy, our hearts, and our minds depends on a variety of factors in which veneration in some form or other is prominent. Now, there are many who fancy themselves to be rationalists, who cut through such factors and make such decisions on the basis of cold logic. The first generations of artificial intelligence were based on this assumption, but failed to navigate a complex and uncertain world without a combinatorial explosion in its calculations. Nobody is a rationalist in this sense, even scientists. The best science can do is verify that this is indeed the landscape of the human mind we are all endowed with. However, we do have the choice of being either discerning or stupid at each step as we navigate this landscape. That is, we can be smart to some extent about whom we venerate, just as we can be smart about whom we choose to flirt with. To bow to the Buddha is to enact veneration for the Buddha. To enact veneration for the Buddha is to feel veneration for the Buddha. To feel veneration for the Buddha is to put aside one's preconceptions and open one's heart and mind to the teachings of the Buddha. To do this is to align with the Buddha's path. This holds as well for the Dharma and for the Sangha. The Buddha once said, For those who find faith in the foremost, the result is foremost. We'll stop here for today. We've talked about the role of the Sangha in maintaining the Sasana, the Buddhist tradition, and preserving the true Dharma. We've talked about the role of refuge and its expression through veneration in keeping the Buddhist understanding of the community overall pointed in the right direction. A few talks ago, we also introduced the contrasting idea of folk Buddhism as the imperfect understanding of the common Buddhist who has not yet had the opportunity or has not developed the inspiration to delve deeply into the Dharma and often has trouble knowing where Buddhism stops and culturally conditioned folk beliefs and practices begin. Next week, I want to begin talking about folk Buddhism found in its various forms throughout the Buddhist world, and ask how the true Dharma persists in spite of the great influence of folk Buddhism.